Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Pastor Gary Bowman for today's message. Harvest. It's his harvest. It's his thing. And while we've all kind of had fun and joked around, I mean, I just appreciated your vulnerability, Linda. Lord, this is your thing. You, <laughs> you did this. Fix it. Yeah. And what's Jesus saying to us? Ask me to what? Ask me to fix it. It's my harvest. The world is mine. This situation is in my control. It is very easy to present missions content in such a way that paints a picture that God is up there wringing his hands. Oh, heavens, I hope that those folks down at Paseo Del Rey, I hope they do something. I've backed myself into a corner. No, 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 no. God is all sufficient. He's in control. He's the Lord of the harvest. And what he's saying to us, here's the invitation. Do what? Ask me. Ask me to send workers into that harvest field called the 1040 window, out into the world, outside of that window, to meet the needs in the world. So what stands in the way of prayer? Well, my unbelief. What else stands in the way of me praying for the nations, right? Now, all of us, um, let me be careful I say this. Uh, I would say a lot of us, if we're honest, we probably struggle to pray in general. But then whenever it comes to praying for the nations, right now you're asking me to pray for something that's out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> we just stepped into a new realm. And so what stands in the way of me praying for the nations? Well, this great big giant wall with a single letter on it. I. I mean, if you were to climb into my head or my prayer journal, 99% of my prayers are about who? Me. And then my immediate needs, my family, my daughter, my wife. And then maybe those outside of me. And so praying for the nations doesn't come naturally. It's something that we've got to be intentional about. So how do we begin to pray for the nations? Let me give you some real practical ways. They'll seem silly at first, but they're very helpful. When you get dressed in the morning and you put on your clothes, just check your tag. See what country they're made in. Not all your clothes are made in China. Serious. And just pray for that country. And what do you pray? You're like, well, I've never prayed for the nations. I don't even know what to say. He tells us. What's he say? He says, not only ask, ask me what? To send workers into the harvest field. So you get dressed in the morning, check the tag on your shirt. Lord, send workers into Indonesia. Lord, send workers into Bangladesh. Lord, send workers into fill in the blank, whatever it might be. So that's one way that you can pray for the nations. Here's another creative way. Uh, just set the alarm on your cell phone or your watch for 1040. Okay, and whenever it goes off, don't complicate it. It doesn't have to be anything elaborate. What does Jesus say? Don't get caught up with these lengthy prayers, thinking that God will hear you because you're all wordy. Keep it simple. <clears throat> I, was looking for a, I was looking for a hand there. <clears throat> yeah, keep it simple. Set your watch for 1040, and when it goes off, what do you pray? Lord, send workers into the harvest field. Send workers into that part of the world that Sean talked about called the 1040 window. What are other creative ways that we can pray for the nations? We're talking about what do we do, right? How do we, how do we put 
action to what we've been talking about all morning and all evening. Other creative ways. Help me think of some creative ways. I want you guys to think through how do you get creative about how you pray for the nations. What do you think? What's that? Watch the news. The newspaper. Oh, so simple, right? Who reads the newspaper in the morning? Who checks the news when you wake up? Oftentimes, again, what news am I reading? News about our country. So you got to wade out of the water and go look at what's going on in the rest of the world and pray based upon what you see in the newspaper or what you read on the internet through news. Okay, other creative ways you can pray for the nations? Yeah. Now that is a novel idea. Ron, do you want to come up here and talk? Get to know somebody that's serving in another country. I know you guys are sending missionaries around the world. Do you know their names? Do you know their needs? Do you read their newsletters? Do you know what country they're in? Do you know what's going on in their country? And we're like, we send missionaries? Yes. Okay. Yeah, get to know a missionary and learn about their country, the needs in their country, ways you can pray for them. That's another way you can get involved in praying for the nations. Or get to know an international student and ask them about their country. Other creative ways. This is good. Let's think through this. By the way, I'm doing this to also help keep you awake and keep you engaged. So this is for you. Yeah? Are there, are there any other ways? Yeah. Gail? See, Gail's like, man, I've got a list of things that I pray through on a fairly regular basis. And one of the things that's not on my list is praying for other countries or praying Matthew 9, 37 through 38. So I'm just going to add it to my list. Simple as that. A lot of times when we talk about missions and we talk about this stuff kind of from 30,000 feet, we complicate how we put it into practice when we get boots down on the ground. But it could be very simple. Just add it to your daily prayer list of things that you pray for. Maybe you get a picture of some of the missionaries that your church sends and you tape it onto your bathroom mirror. Maybe you put it on your fridge. I know some of you guys have pictures of people on your fridge that you see regularly and so you can pray for them. Yeah. another way you could do it yeah boom yeah okay so you can set it for 1040 and pray for the 1040 window or you could set your watch to a corresponding time at 937 938 36 whatever you want to do uh, this same prayer right here this same story is told in Luke I think uh, 10 2 so you could set your watch for 1002 um, yeah set it for a corresponding time and just pray this prayer now I'll warn you, I'll warn you that this is a very dangerous prayer to pray. The guy that discipled me and mentored me in college said, Sean, you want to pray one of the most dangerous prayers in the Bible? Pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest field. Why? He called, this mentor of mine called it the divine tap. You know, that, where it's like, Lord, I pray that you would send workers into the harvest field. Hey, John, 
why don't you go? So now at this point, I know I've just blown everything apart that I just told you because you're going, I'm not going to pray that prayer because I don't want to leave. <laughs> at least you can be honest enough with yourself to say that. Okay, God knows that. He knows all. He knows the state of our heart. But legitimately, be careful if you pray this prayer. We have an old coworker on staff with the traveling team who bought this book called Operation World. In fact, let me give you some resources. Here's some great resources. A lot of us don't know about the world. We're really poor and pitiful when it comes to geography and what's going on in the rest of the world. You guys know that Africa is not a country. Some of you are like, that was worth the price of admission right there. Yeah, it's not a country, it's a continent. Um, So we need to educate ourselves. A lot of times one of the issues with praying for the nations is because we just just need to get educated. And so uh, Joshua Project is a a Christian organization that has gathered all the resources on the people groups in the world and which ones are unreached, um, which ones are reached, ways we can pray for them. Operation World is a similar resource, but instead of it focusing on people groups, it focuses on nation states. Um, Every Home for Christ is an organization that you can reach out to. They'll send you prayer maps where you can post a map uh, in maybe a part of your house, and it will coach you through how to pray for the world over the course of a month. It's just a great hands-on resource. Um, I show you these because we have an old traveling team coworker who got his hands on a copy of this book called Operation World. And it's alphabetically, so by country. So the first country in Operation World, I think, is Afghanistan. And Joe got his hands on a copy of Operation World, opened it up, and read about Afghanistan, began to pray about Afghanistan. And as he prayed about Afghanistan, he couldn't stop praying about Afghanistan. And several of our coworkers approached him and said, Joe, how's, your, how's, how's it going as you pray through Operation World? And Joe kept telling him, I can't get past Afghanistan. I can't get past Afghanistan. And he kept praying for Afghanistan. And then what happened? Joe went to Afghanistan for 10 years, which makes you feel like, sorry for Zimbabwe, right? (laughs) It's like, man, turn the page, Joe. (laughs) So while I joke, it's true. Like, I have seen this happen where, man, you pray for a country and God stirs your heart. And you get to a place where you can't bear it anymore and you just say, what? I'll go. So how do, we, how do we get involved? Very simply by what? Praying. God has a heart for the nations. Sean, what can I do? You can what? Easy, Gary. Get in the cart before the horse, bud. Yeah, we can pray. And do not diminish that. Do not diminish that. One other thing real quick about this passage right here. If you read through the Gospels, this is the only known prayer request that I am aware of that Jesus makes. You ever wonder what it'd be like to sit in a community group or a missional community with Jesus and it's time for prayer requests and it comes around to Jesus and you're like, what's he going to (laughs) say? There it is right there. Only one I'm aware of in the New Testament or certainly off the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. Pray for workers. That's it. That's Jesus' prayer request. How else do we get involved in sending through the work of what? Giving. We can pray and we can give. Paul says in Romans 10, 13 through 15, how can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? But how can they preach unless 
they are. This is remarkable. When Paul surveys God's global purpose, it's sort of like the whole thing gets out of the starting blocks with the who. The sender. It's almost like he's working backwards, like his logic is sort of working backwards. They, you know, they can't, they can't call unless they believe. They can't believe unless they hear. They can't preach unless someone, what, sins. And so really it sort of all starts. It all sort of gets off the ground with those who are senders, those who are sending, those who are involved in the work of sending. And I certainly think you can say that uh, praying and sending, um, they, they sort of go together. They go hand in glove. Um, I know I've kind of separated them out, but they're, they work hand in glove together. Um, sending. <clears throat> I remember whenever I was raising support to come on staff with a traveling team, I'd never raised support uh, for a salaried position in my life, and so it was a faith experience that I'm still thankful for. And I remember a lot of times when you raise personal support, you're always the person who's calling other people and asking them, hey, can I get together with you? Tell me about my, you know, tell you about my ministry vision and invite you to be a part of my financial support team. So it's, you're always the one who's sort of initiating with the, those who are supporting. And whenever I was raising support, I remember getting this phone call from these two brothers, uh, Simeon and Fisher Vollendorf. And they called me up and they said, hey, we want you to come over to our house. We want to talk to you about supporting you, which I was giddy over because no one's ever calling you saying, hey, come talk to us. We want to support you. And so I thought, this is wonderful. So I went over to their house, I sat down on the couch, poured out my heart to these guys. I said, man, this is what I want to do. I want to tell as many Christians in this country about God's heart for the nations and challenge them and invite them into being a part of it. Um, I am convinced. And so I'm about halfway through my spiel. And the two brothers are like, okay, you can stop. We've heard enough. I was like, what? I'm not even done yet. And they said, no, 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 you can stop. We want to come on your support team. I nearly fell off the couch. I thought, this is fantastic. They called me. They're going to support me. And so one of the brothers steps out of the room, comes back in. He's got a Ziploc bag full of dollar bills and change. He says, we'd like to support you for a one-time gift of $151.17. And I was thinking to myself, okay, in this moment, do I be thankful or do I evaluate how long $151.17 is really going to last me? And so I was like... Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for giving. And here's what makes the story so powerful. Fisher was nine, and his brother Simeon was seven. Yep, that's the appropriate response. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Two brothers, nine and seven years old. So I started calculating up. I asked these guys, I said, how much allowance do you get? They're like a dollar a month. I was like, okay. And they're like, my, our dad's taught us, our dad's taught us how to save, give, and spend. In fact, their father mentored me in college. And, you know, I tell college students across the country often, if a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old can send, you know, what's your excuse as a college student? Because college students will tell you, man, we don't have any money, we're living off of ramen. <laughs> I'm like, you got more than you think. You know, um, we can be involved in irrational generosity. We really can. 
1 Samuel 30, 24 says, The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. A lot of times, um, folks who are involved in the work of sending can feel like second-class Christians. Um, man, I'm not going to the front lines, so I, you know, I guess I'm sort of second-class because I'm staying here behind and, and sending. And there was this rule in the Old Testament, a uh, particular context of this verse was with David and the army of Israel, but it has direct application to the work of being an effective irrational giver, if you will. Um, David said, he's got all these soldiers, and he says, it doesn't matter whether you're going to the front lines or whether you're staying back here behind and watching all the stuff of the rest of the army. At the end of the day, when the battle's over and the victory's done, what's David say to his army? All share alike. So I don't want you to think that if you're engaged in um, irrational generosity, that you're a second-class Christian um, by any stretch of the imagination. When this is all over with um, and God rolls it all out, uh, man, if you're in Christ and you said yes to getting involved in God's global purposes, we're all going to what? We're all going to share alike. And so just a great reminder that those who are staying behind and sending through the work of giving financially, um, in a, you know, generously irrational way, we're all going to share like. Um, you're not a second-class Christian. However, as we've kind of hit this at several different angles, um, not only are we dealing with our greed, our materialism, our debt, our selfishness, our own fight with sin, um, when God finally pries our fingers off of it, and we drop it into the offering plate, here's another way it shakes down. So we've kind of, again, we've approached this from different angles, but here's another way it shakes down. For every dollar that drops into the offering plate, 96 cents stays within the American church. Three and a half cents goes where? To the reached world. And less than a penny goes to the unreached world. Now I'm going to ask you guys some questions that is going to stir the hornet's nest a little bit more. Um... What's going to have to happen for these statistics to change? You sound eager to answer. <sighs> Complete psychological change. What do you mean? Careful what you say. <laughs> no, fair enough. Okay. What else is going to have to change for this right here to change? This is a sticky subject, by the way. So I realize I'm wading out into some deep water. I heard something over here. Hold the thought. Uh, Miss Karen, tell me your thoughts. Okay, total giving needs to increase so that more of it can go to unreached, okay? Well, 
American churches have to reduce. Your name? Catherine. Tell me what you mean, Catherine. Wow. You've been thinking about this? <laughs> Catherine? Catherine's like, man, we might need to think differently about like the place of big church, so to speak. Nothing wrong with growing the kingdom, but with that comes bigger buildings, bigger electricity payments, more overhead, larger staff salaries. Okay? And again, I'm not going to tell you this is what we get to work out corporately as a body together. And I know it's funny because Gary's sitting here. Oftentimes, the senior pastor of the church is not sitting there. And so whenever I have this conversation, I need to remind my audience, like, hey, now that you know all this stuff, like, don't go kick your pastor's door down, guns blazing, being like, all right, you're all idiots. Listen to me. I know something about missions and how we need to spend all our money. That is not the way that you handle this truth and this information. You with me? We still have to be Christ-like. <clears throat> so... Good, but other ways, other thoughts. Okay, these are good. Steve? Are you asking a question? I'm just saying for every dollar that drops into a local congregational offering plate, this is the shakedown. And I'm not saying that that's the case, and I'm not just saying this to save my skin since Gary's sitting here, but I'm not saying that's the case with Paseo del Rey. I don't know. But generally speaking, this is kind of what we're dealing with. Okay, specific giving. Okay. What's that? Wow, why did we spend a whole hour and a half defining what the mission is? Because it has implications. What kind of implications? Well, if I go to a church, and this has happened, if I go to a church and this church tells me, man, we're engaged in missions, and I say to them, okay, can I see your budget? Some of you guys are like, wow, you're bold. <laughs> if I say to them, can I look at your budget, and they concede, and we start looking at it, right? They say, oh, man, we got a missions budget over here. Okay, tell me about your missions budget. Well, 30% of our giving is to missions. We are a missions-based church. And then we start analyzing those line items within that missions budget. And lo and behold, how much of it is making it to missions? Because we're unclear you see what I'm saying? On what the mission is. Now, does that mean that we just sort of have this vacuum of stealing all the money away from local ministries and ministries to reach parts of the world? No, that's not what I'm saying. Not in the least. That would be absurd. But if I made it to the end of my life and I watched these statistics change from less than a penny, if I watched those statistics change to a dime... I would die a happy man. <laughs> you with me? So defining the mission has an impact, a direct impact 
on those line items within our giving. I mean, I've been at churches and they've said, man, this is how we define missions. And then you look at their money and guess what? All of it's right where? Right here with us. And I'm just saying, hey, we need to think about that stuff. Okay, good. These are good things. And that's part of the process is us wrestling through this. What else is going to have to change for this to change right here? Yeah, out. Once again, I didn't say it. Seminaries, what about them? Seminaries, which are training pastors to come in and lead local congregations, you think how they train their pastors with regards to God's heart for the nations has an impact on these financial decisions right here? You bet they do. I'm in a seminary right now. Only a few of you in this room know where it is. I am super thankful. I mean this, not just because this is probably being recorded somewhere, but I am super thankful for the seminary that I am currently a part of. It is a phenomenal seminary. In fact, I would take it one step further and tell you that they're actually funding my education through scholarships, and I couldn't be more grateful. However, as a part of my 67-hour degree program, I am not required to take a single missions class. Sixty-seven hour degree program and no requirement for God's global heart for the nations. And so what kind of pastors do we generate? Now, I want to be real careful here. I know pastors that could walk theological and doctrinal circles around me. They are grounded in God's word. But their theology has never carried over into their missiology which tells me that there's something about it that's still a little off, if you will. So seminaries have an impact on this. Who would have thought, right? Who would have thought? Okay, other things that are going to need to change? How about it starts, hang on just a second, how about this one? How about it starts with us? How about it starts with my wallet, <laughs> right? Do you think that these statistics right here change the way that me and my wife give personally? You bet they do, 100%. There are a lot of things, and this is going to be controversial with some of you. We could be giving, it's possible that we could be generous, think this through, we could be generous to the wrong thing. What that wrong thing is, I'll leave for you to sort out, but we could be generous to the wrong thing. You with me? Okay, let's move on. <clears throat> How do we get involved in going through welcoming the nations that are in our backyard? Um, I told you guys this morning that Jesus engaged with the nations that were right there uh, on his own soil. He never traveled more than 90 miles from his own hometown. <clears throat> and yet he was engaging those non-Jews uh, that were in his right geographical quarters, if you will. The Samaritan woman at the well, the healing of the Canaanite slaughter. I mean, this is uh, eight. I just put eight examples up here. By my count, there's probably about two dozen examples where Jesus is either ministering directly to Gentiles or people from other nations, or um, it has to do with the Gentiles' response to Jesus. And so this is a, just a real short, you know, thumbnail of us recognizing Jesus's engagement with the nations that were in his backyard. <clears throat> 850,000 international students studying from 
right, in the United States from 188 countries. I mean, God's bringing them to our backyard, right? They're here. At, at, at the campus that's here in this city, they're here. And we've got this incredible opportunity to stick out our hand, welcome them into our home, befriend them, bring them over for holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. Um, invite them into your home and give them an opportunity to see what the holidays are really about. Why is it so significant? Because 40 of the world's top leaders studied at universities in the United States. Did the initials KSM, those, those initials sound familiar to anybody in this room? KSM. They should be. Tell me about him, Alan. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. That's okay. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was Osama bin Laden's right-hand man. He was the mastermind behind September 11th. He came to the United States and studied at a small little Christian university in Kentucky. And whenever he came here as a student, his so-called Christian classmates, right? Muslims don't wear their shoes into their house. They usually sit them outside or right inside the door. They don't wear them around in their house. His Christian classmates would often take his shoes and go throw them into the pond that was on campus. Sometimes, sometimes they would fill up a 55-gallon drum barrel full of water. They'd lean it up against his door and they'd knock on his door and then they'd run off. And when he would open up his door, his dorm room would fill up with 55 gallons of water. Christians. Now, everybody who calls himself a Christian isn't a Christian. We know that. Just to bear the name doesn't mean that you're born again. <clears throat> Am I saying that all Christians treat Muslims that way? No. Why do I share the story? Why do I share the story? What would have happened if he'd have been treated differently? It's a big what if question. We're never going to get it answered this side of heaven. But what would have happened if he'd have been treated differently? What would, have been what would have happened if he would have been loved on? Uh, <clears throat> Leviticus 19.34, you know that book in the, like the Bible that we don't read? <clears throat> One that's real bloody and boring. <clears throat> I don't know how those two things can go together. Uh, but yeah, Leviticus 19.34, God tells the Israelites, hey, listen, you are to love the foreigner like yourself. For you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God gave Israel a 400 plus year tutorial lesson on how to love people who are from other nations. Israel, do you remember how miserable it was to live under the hand of Pharaoh in a foreign land? <laughs> yeah, it was awful, God. Okay, Israel, when I drop you into the promised land, what? Don't do the same thing that Pharaoh and the Egyptians did to you. Foreigners are going to come into the promised land. Now, there are clear instructions, Israel, you're not to marry with them. But that doesn't mean that you treat them like you were treated in Israel. You got 400 years of that so that I could teach you that when people from other nations come into your land, you love them like what? 
You love them like one of yourself. In fact, Jesus takes it one step further and says we are to love our enemies. Why does he command us to love our enemies? Why does he command us to love those who threaten our safety and our comfort and our security? Because it is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel. God loved us while we were his what? Sinners, while we were his enemies. That's why loving our enemies... Okay, now I'm weaving together loving our enemies and the nations together here. I'm not saying that all internationals are terrorists. I'm not saying that all internationals are a threat. But even if they are, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. Because when we love our enemies, we put the gospel on what? We put the gospel on display for the world to see. When we love those who are our enemies, the world recognizes, oh, this is what it's like for God to love his enemies when he sent Christ to die. That's why it's so important, because it becomes a representation. It becomes a picture of the gospel. And so, going back to the beginning. Okay, Sean, God has a heart for the nations. We got our excuses. There's this clear task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But one of the ways we can be involved is reaching the ones who are coming here. You with me? We can reach the ones that are coming here. I remember one of our coworkers one time. She met a girl on campus at a university who was all revved up about China. Oh, man, I want to go to China. I want to go on a mission trip to China. And I remember this coworker of ours, her name was Rebecca. Rebecca asked this student, she said, do you have any Chinese international friends? No. And she's like, why are you willing to go overseas if you're not even willing to go across the street, like across the campus to the nations that are right here? You know, so we can, even, we can even get excited about, you know, God's heart for the nations over there when we've got this incredible opportunity at our fingertips to, to reach out and engage them here. And so that's one of the ways we can be involved in praying. We can be involved in sending through prayer. We can be involved in sending through giving. We can be involved in going, essentially, by welcoming those who are right here on our own soil. Last but not least... The one we've all been waiting for. We can be involved in going through doing what we've been talking about all day today. Packing up and having a permanent address change. Short-term trips just aren't going to get it done. They're just not. This is David and Gloria of Reland right here in the middle. I met David six years ago in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, David was coordinating a perspectives class, which you guys have been hearing about all day today. I have not made a plug yet for perspectives, so it's about time. <laughs> um, Take the class. Uh, take the class. I don't know where or how the Lord is going to use it in your life. But you will be so thankful. They've shortened it down to 11 weeks. It's typically 15. They're providing you financial support to be able to take it at a reduced cost. 
um, I would plead with you to take this class they keep talking about called Perspectives. Um, when I took Perspectives, it was like I got saved a second time. So I'll say one more thing about Perspectives, then I'll finish telling you about David, and we'll, we'll close it down for the night. <clears throat> I would tell you that taking perspectives was in the top five most life-changing things I've ever experienced. And just to give you some context for that statement, uh, the most life-changing thing that's ever happened to me was when I got saved. Um, a homeless man in Waco, Texas shared the gospel with me, and God used it to totally turn my world upside down. Um, I was blind, and now I see is exactly what happened. Um, I knew that I was sinful. I was wicked. God should justly punish me in hell forever. Um, I was proud, self-righteous, moralistic, and God opened my eyes, and I realized the grace that he was offering me through Christ and the cross, and um, I went to Waco one man, and I came home a different person. Um, so second to getting saved, I would tell you life-changing experience would include getting married. Third to getting married would be having children, <clears throat> and fourth to getting saved, getting married, and having kids, fourth most life-changing thing I've experienced was actually watching my mom die three years ago. Um, I was telling, uh, telling some friends today in the car that I was with her when she took her last breath. And if you've never watched someone breathe their last breath, as morbid as this sounds, I would encourage you to do it because it'll give you some real perspective on what matters in life. Um, so having said that, getting saved, getting married, having kids, and watching my mom pass into eternity, taking perspectives, this class they keep talking about, was hands down the most life-changing thing I've experienced. So please take perspectives. I met David and Gloria in North Carolina. David was coordinating a perspectives class, <clears throat> and he asked me to come out and teach, and we became good friends over a six-year period of time. And every year, David would call me up and say, hey, Sean, I want you to come out and teach the first lesson and the last lesson. It was a lot of fun. So I got to be with the students the first week and the last week. And so, yeah, six years, we built a relationship together. And um, I got to hear David's heart. I got to see how God began to work in him as he not only took perspectives, but then coordinated it. And then he watched dozens of people in Wilmington, North Carolina, go through the class and get their lives changed. And in February of this year, I was sitting in my office, and I get a phone call from David. And I thought it was about coming back out to Wilmington, and he called me up, and he was like, hey, Sean, I got some bad news for you. I said, what's up? And he said, well, I'm, I got to cancel the Wilmington Perspectives class this year. I was like, what? We've been doing this for six years. <clears throat> and David said, yep, I'm canceling the class. I said, why? He said, Gloria and I are selling the farm. I said, what? He's like, yeah, we're going to the ends of the earth. David was a nuclear engineer for General Electric, and his wife, Gloria, was a family practice doctor who ran her own practice. They were making gobs of money. They were supporting missionaries, and David said, I just can't do it anymore. I just can't spend another year telling other people to go. And he said, I'm probably too old to learn Mandarin fluently and to plant a church among unreached peoples. But he said, we're going to go spend the last quarter of our life in China. I was like, that's a good reason to cancel class. <laughs> I'll go somewhere else. And David told me, he said, he's an avid cyclist. 
avid cyclist. <clears throat> He'd probably kill me if he knew I was telling you this. He had a $12,000 road bike that he rode all across the country. He'd ride 150, 200 miles a week. 62 years old, incredible shape. <clears throat> and um, I said, uh, what's your greatest fear? He said, oh, it's not going to China. I said, well, what, what is or what was it? And he was like, you know, my greatest fear, Sean, was realizing that I was going to spend the last quarter of my life riding my bike around Wilmington, knowing that I could have done more. Knowing I could have done more. I said, what's Glory going to do? He's like, oh, she's a doctor. She'll have no problem finding work. <laughs> he said, uh, we're leaving as soon as the house sells. Was he engaged in God's global purpose? You bet. He was coordinating perspectives. He was raising up other workers. Was he giving sacrificially? And was he an irrational giver? Was he? Yeah, you bet he was. And he just said, all right, it's time to go. I'm tired of telling other people to go. We're just going to go ourselves. I can't sleep with myself any longer. So why do I share David's story? To just say to some of you in this room, it doesn't matter what age or stage you are in life. I came here this weekend because I think that God is asking some of you to leave. I don't know who, but I think that God's asking some of you to leave and to go to the hardest parts of the world, whether it's for another 10 to 15 years, 20 years, or whether it's the last 10 to 15 that the Lord gives you. But I legitimately think there's some of you in here that need to leave. Not all of you, but some of you. How can we be involved in God's heart for the world? Through praying, through giving financially, through welcoming the nations that are in our backyard, and through packing up and going. Thanks for letting me be with you guys this weekend. I really appreciate you very, very much. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for our time today. We need your guidance. In light of all that's been said today, as to how you would have us respond in light of what you've revealed to us this weekend. God, I count it a huge privilege and an honor to be able to talk about this stuff, knowing how short I fall of the glory of God myself. So thank you. Thank you for Gary. Thank you for the leadership of this church. And just thank you for the body of believers who came here tonight. Lord, we do have an enemy, and he seeks to snatch up and choke out the seeds that have been sown today. To choke them out with the cares of the world, and riches, and distraction. His desire is that the seeds sown today would fall on rocky, thorny soil. But God, you, I believe, in faith, have brought people here tonight. And some of them, you've, you've made good soil in their heart, ready to receive your word. And you're going to produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so protect us from an enemy that seeks to snatch up that seed and grow, grow, God what only you can grow. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're done.